good to see you guys this morning. Man, the Lord is really good. Uh, we've already had a good time here today, and um, we're going to continue to do so. Before we get into this morning's word, I do want to tell you, uh, didn't you guys appreciate Brady and, and the guys this morning? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Brady, I think you have some, uh, you've got some albums over there somewhere, right? Yeah. yeah. You guys should buy them. They're really good. I have no clue, but they're well, they're affordable. It's America. It's America. Everything's affordable. It's all good. Five bucks. Is that what you said, Brady? Sweet. So cheap. Help the boy. Help him. Somebody. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to start a new mini-series here at the Vineyard uh, this week. This week and then next week. Uh, we're going to talk about worship for the next couple of weeks. And the reason I want to do that is we're in the midst of a season here at the Vineyard where we're doing worship every single night for the month. Uh, that started because back at the end of December, I was just sort of sitting in my office doing pastor things and uh, just trying to think pastor thoughts and pray pastor prayers. And at a certain point, I thought, you know, maybe I should pray for the church. I don't know. So I, I started doing that and just saying, God, what do you want to do at the Vineyard this uh, this coming year? And I just had a little little tiny impression and uh, just sort of saw a picture of us worshiping every night in February. I began to pray about that, and the Lord just shared something really simple with me. And it's just this idea that February is Valentine's month and February is heart month. And so what we wanted to do was, as a church and as the people of God, we wanted to get together every night and worship Jesus and just get reconnected to our heart and to our love and get right back down to the really the main thing and with no other agenda, just to say, Jesus, you're awesome. There's no other agenda. We're not going for revival. We're not, we're not trying to make something happen. I'm not trying to turn the world upside down, Jesus. We're just here and we love you. That makes sense. And the reason that's such a big deal is because if you, if you go to church very much or if you go to meetings very often, one of the things you're going to know is really quick, no one will ever say it, of course, but it's the, it's the unspoken text that's right beneath the surface. It's this, it's that worship is often co-opted for all sorts of other means. That, that, and, and it doesn't have anything necessarily sometimes to do with just loving Jesus. So a lot of times, worship will get co-opted in an effort to have revival. By the way, I'm for revival. But the main thing is to love Jesus. True and authentic worship is always about saying, Jesus, we're here for your pleasure. It's people who are awake to the reality that their life was meant for the pleasure of God. That's what real worship is. Real worship is, if it's genuine and authentic, it's not contractual. And one of the things that we've done in the church is we've made everything contractual. Even right down to salvation. We've made salvation mostly this contractual, legal sort of exchange. And I'm here to tell you it's not legal, it's relational. And worship isn't contractual. We're not required to do it per se. No one's going to be breaking the contract. There is no contract. The contract is marriage with the Lord and it's relational. Does this make sense? And so true worship is relational. It isn't, it isn't contractual. It's the overflow of hearts that have been awakened to the love of God and then quite naturally begin to return that love to Him. Worship is the shared love between God and His people. It's the sung and it's the unsung conversation that bubbles up between hearts that are alive and on fire. And worship is the shaking off of delusion and coming to one's senses. It's, it's life seen for what it really is, a wonder, an absolute wonder. It's shaking off delusion. It's seeing life for what it really is. It's a wonder. You may have heard that life was something other than a wonder. You've been lied to. Life is a wonder. 
Life is, and worship is awakening from the delusion that life is anything other than a wonder. And it's, worship is a symphony of divine love where everything gets set to right. It's the realization that you and I are loved with an everlasting love even when we're really weak. You're dearly loved. Even when you're really weak. Not only are we awakening to the reality of love, but it's also the realization that God sees everything and He sees everything accurately. God is not fooled by you. God is not fooled by any person in here. He knows the good. He knows the bad. And He knows the ugly. And yet He chooses to love. It's really remarkable. So on our end, it's waking up, from the, it's waking up to the reality and waking up out of delusion that life is a wonder, that we're dearly loved even in weakness. But it's also the realization that God is not fooled. He sees your whole life. He knows where you're great. He knows where you're not great. And in the midst of the great and the not great, He says, I love you. And the Old Testament scriptures communicate not only that He loves you, but that He's singing it over you. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that, he, that he, de- he takes great delight in you and He sings over you. How many of you know that when the Lord... Like, you sing because you've because language has stopped being able to communicate effectively what you want to say. Like when you fall in love, you sing, right? Why? Because to say it doesn't say it. And so God sings over you. Like even in your weakness. He'll sing a song right over you. He's always singing it. And so worship is really waking up to the song that God is singing over your life right now. Even when you're really weak. And from this place of hearing the song of the Lord sung over my life, I don't worship to get anything. I don't worship to get anything. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not getting revival. I'm not getting a breakthrough. I don't worship for breakthrough. I don't worship to gather anything from God. You know why? Because I already have it. I'm deeply loved and affirmed, accepted, totally cared for, always and forever, good, bad, and ugly. God is not delusional. He sees me and He loves me. Not only that, but He's singing over me. And so it's awakening to that song. And so this morning, I want, to sh- I, want to just, I want us to look at a text this morning. It's a really straightforward text, but it's one I love. Let's look at Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power and praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipes. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We could almost take a journalistic approach to the psalm this morning because it basically covers all the aspects of worship. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how. I think it's very interesting that God would share who, what, when, why, and how. Precisely because He doesn't have to share who, what, when, where, why, and how. God's under no contractual obligation to share that information with anyone. He could, if He wanted to, simply require that people worship. Because after all, He is the biggest person in the cosmos. But he never does that. 
It's one of the great things about God. God never plays the aloof, emotionally distant father who crosses his arms and looks at his children and says, because I said so. God is never the because I said so God. And so he shares some things with us, and it's in the scripture this morning. The first thing I want want you to notice is just that first phrase in verse 1. Praise the Lord. And then I want you to look all the way down at the bottom of verse 6. It says, praise the Lord again. So there's these bookends. It's the beginning and the ending of this psalm. And in ancient language, ancient writing, and ancient thought, oftentimes the most important thing is put first and last. Why? Because you'll remember it. It's, this is the main point, and then, by the way, don't forget it. And so, what's the main point in this morning's scripture? Praise the Lord. And not only that, it's not just the bookends. We don't just have bookends of praise the Lord in this one particular psalm, but it's the way the entire book has closed. There's 150 psalms, and at the very end, the main idea that the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, is trying to communicate is praise the Lord. And so, we might wonder, why is, why is it so important? Well, the reason that it's so important is because... It's because it's very simple. It's, it's this. It's if you miss this, praise the Lord. If you, if you don't praise the Lord, to not praise the Lord is to miss the foundational practice of all life. You will fail to recognize the meaning of life, a part of seeing God and giving Him praise. If you live a life of not worship, if you live a life of not praise, if you fail to recognize, see God, if you fail to to experience His love, if you fail to know it, if you can't see it, and then you fail to respond to it, you, you forfeit your meaning for a purpose. You, you forfeit your meaning for living. And in doing so, you live an utterly ruined life. And you'll wonder, what am I doing? What am I doing? Some of you, are, you go to bed at night. You, you go down to sleep. Everyone else is in the house. They're totally asleep. You're up at 2 in the morning, and you've got existential questions about the meaning of life circulating through your brain. The only way to deal with the existential questions of life that circulate through your brain and keep you up late at night is to settle this one issue, and it is, praise the Lord. It is the foundational issue of all other issues. It's the beginning and the end. It's the consummation. It's the ultimate fulfillment of human life. And see, here's the deal. We make, a, we make kind of a big deal here at the Vineyard about gathered worship. See, here's the thing. It's more than a few tunes that we, that we jam out to, and it's more than simply having a really good band and a couple good singers entertain us. It's more than that. And the reason it's more than that is because right beneath the great singers and the really hot band, right beneath is something that touches the center of what it means to be a human. It's the foundation of life. You might be thinking, Pastor Adam, those are lofty words. Perhaps. But to praise the Lord requires a few very important life-defining things. Number one, to praise or to worship the Lord requires us to acknowledge, first and foremost, that there is a God. It's hard to worship a God that doesn't exist. And so to, to worship means that we acknowledge the greatest truth in all the universe there is a god and then secondly we have to acknowledge that we are not him the beginning of mental health is to acknowledge there is a god and we're not him and then thirdly thirdly it is to acknowledge that god is good and he is beautiful if you get those three things right in your life the foundation for wholeness has been laid get this right 
and a path of, of trajectory of goodness is established. Get it wrong and watch as your life disintegrates into ever-widening circles of chaos, confusion, and isolation. By the way, everybody is a worshiper. Everybody in here. Everybody here is worshiping something. You can't help it. You were designed and perfectly crafted to give voice to things that you think are great. People do it all the time. Go to a basketball game. There's nothing wrong with going to basketball games, by the way. You know, when um, a couple weeks ago when Kentucky was still kind of good? <laughs> they were never good this year, but they were kind of good. But you remember that game when, when Nerlens had 12 blocks? I was flipping out. Why? Because it was awesome. Like, when a guy has four fouls and completely takes over the game and throws everybody out of the gym, that's awesome. And guess what I did? Man, I got up. I was off my couch. I nearly woke my wife up. I'm screaming. Why? Because people like me, people like you, we've been perfectly designed and crafted to notice and then give voice and express things that are great. And so everybody's worshiping something. Some people in the room are worshiping their careers. Some people in the room are worshiping their spouses. Some people in the room are worshiping their children. Some people in the room are not worshiping their children. Some people in the room are worshiping a, a job that, they, that they're hoping to land. Some people in the room are worshiping their intellect and their education. And then all of us in the room are probably experienced this um, Anybody have any experience with criticism? See, criticism is actually, is actually one way of knowing that you were made to worship because criticism is the exact opposite of worship. It's noticing what sucks and give voice to it. And it's actually the, de- it's, it's the, demonic, it's the demonic opposite of what you were made to do. Everybody here is worshiping something. And so to get it right is to lay a foundation for your whole life. To get it wrong is to, is to destroy the foundation and, and watch your life dissolve into ever-widening circles of chaos, confusion, and isolation. This is why failure to worship God is so disastrous. It's the, tra- it's the trajectory-setting moment for all of life. Get it wrong, and the course of your life is knocked off, but it's so subtle you might not notice. That's the problem with trajectory. It's never major. It's always really subtle. And, and, and to worship is to set something so subtle and so quiet in the heart in the right direction that everything begins to work out. To not worship is to set the life trajectory so subtly off. People will look at you from the outside and go, that person's doing great right now. But you multiply that off trajectory across space and across time and across distance and pretty soon you ended up in a place that you never planned on going. That's the problem with trajectory. Everybody here is a worshiper and everybody here is going somewhere. But the problem is some of us are going to end up in places that we never planned on going. Why? Because we're just a little bit off. By the way, no one ever wakes up, rolls over in bed and goes, you know what, honey? I really hate the Lord and I'm not going to believe in him anymore. And by the way, I'm really hoping to get a prostitute and a gambling problem and lose all my money and end up a heroin addict and laying in a ditch somewhere. But how many of you know that all of those things happen to people? How? Trajectory? few things got knocked off just a little bit 
And the next thing you know, you end up in a place that you never planned on going. Because of trajectory, it's quite possible for a person to end up in heaven or hell well before they die. Happens all the time. Heaven and hell are not just ultimate outcomes. They're actually where you're living right now. And here's the problem with trajectory. It's subtle. We've established that. And then number two, it establishes new normals. And so we progressively become used to, we progressively become accustomed to things that we at one time were not used to or accustomed to. And we relax around things that we used to not be able to relax around. Compromise is always the enemy to true worship because compromise leads us to new normals. And then number three, and this is the heartbreaking one, the problem with trajectory is that it's an issue of investment. Oftentimes a person can live their life so long in a given direction and perhaps it's a wrong direction and perhaps they even wake up to the reality that they're living in a space or a territory that they never dreamed of being in, a place in their heart, a place in their life, maybe even a geographic location they never dreamed of being in, but they've invested so much time so much energy and so much effort getting there that the pride of life shows up in their heart and they say, I won't even admit I'm wrong because to admit I'm wrong means I have to admit I'm wrong to everyone and that I've been wrong about everything. And so I'll continue in this disastrous path. I meet people like that all the time. And so today, the the time to change is always today. The time for change is always today. Why? Because tomorrow it will be harder. It will be harder tomorrow. No matter how difficult change is today, tomorrow it will be harder. There'll be grace for tomorrow, but it won't be easy. Grace never means easy, by the way. Grace just means possible. We have a lot of teaching in the church on grace that's false. We assume that it'll be easy, that grace is easy. No, grace is not always easy. Grace is oftentimes difficult. Grace, in the New Testament biblical sense, means possible. Titus chapter 2. Grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's an empowerment for possibilities. So the day to change is today. So church, we should wake up. We should give our hearts to God and not just our lips, but our hearts. Not just right actions, but a right heart. The end of verse 1 there says, Praise Him in His sanctuary and then praise Him in His mighty heavens. And sort of the idea here, that word sanctuary, it's, it would have given people... In, in um, David's day, it would have given people in Jesus' day instantly one picture. That word sanctuary would have given them a picture of the temple. So praise God in His temple, which is on the earth, and then praise Him in His mighty heavens. So between the temple and mighty heavens, I think we've covered all the bases, right? God should be worshipped where? Everywhere. And if God is worshipped everywhere, then God should be worshipped by who? Everyone. A couple important things here. I'll pass up some of them. But one of the main things that I want to get across here is this, that, um, that worship isn't for a particular personality type. Sometimes we think, especially in modern America, that we think that worship is for a, a, a particular personality type. Maybe it's for like the super emotional, like cry all the time people who are maybe should be medicated and... Really broken, just like worship's for broken people who should be medicated, you know. Or sometimes we we think this other thing worship is for 
Like, worship is for people who are, like, really hip. Well, I've got news for you this morning. Like, you don't have to wear, you don't even have to own skinny pants. Like, you, you, you don't have to pay $100 for a haircut that looks like mange. You can, be a, you can totally be a worshiper. Uh, you, don't have to have, you don't have to have the devil's ink in your arm anywhere, and you can still be a worshiper. My arm's on fire right now. Got all this witch's blood in my arm. But it's not about personality types. It's not about over-emotional people. They're, they're the worshipers. Well, we'll leave it to them. No, you know what? You can, you can actually be a rows and columns spreadsheet and be a worshiper. Yeah. You can be a manager. You can have gifts of administration and be a worshiper and be near Jesus' heart and love Him so much. You know why? Because Jesus loves spreadsheets. He goes, look at that guy. Look at that spreadsheet walking around. Man, he's so by the book. It's driving everyone around him crazy, but I just love him. God should be worshipped everywhere. He should be worshipped by all kinds of people. And then in verse 2, it says, Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. A couple thoughts here. Number one, praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for what he's done. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise Him for who He is. Like, how do we enter into worship? Two ways. Number one, seeing, being able to see the way that God has acted on your behalf will lead you into worship. Being, being able to know that you know that you know that God has been good to me, that He has worked things for my good, that He has been on my side, not in some sort of esoteric, you know, maybe someday in heaven sort of way, but like right now, like I wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for Jesus. That'll lead you into being able to worship. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness, that He's just great. Like, who He is is beautiful. His character is perfect. There's no one like Him. Being able to enter into either one of those understandings and revelations of who God is naturally makes us a worshiper. If you can see the activity of God in your life, you'll be a worshiper. If you can discern His wonderful character, you'll worship. Here's the problem, though. There have been certain theologies that have been propagated in the church and in in an effort to magnify the greatness of God they've created a system where God turns out to be a monster maybe you've believed those at some point I'll explain it goes sort of like this if God is great then what do we it's really an issue of the problem of evil so it works like this Uh, really horrible things happen all the time really really terrible things and, uh, for instance, um, like 30-year-old men who die in their prime from cancer and they leave three young children and a wife behind. But God is great and He's powerful. And so in an effort to maintain the greatness and the power of God, people look at this impossible situation and they say, God must have wanted it to happen. Why? Because if He didn't want it to happen and it happened, then He isn't great or powerful, Right? And so we, we come up with these theologies about God where, where people can die of cancer and leave a single mom with three kids behind and we go, well, I don't understand it, but God must be good. A couple things. Number one, God is incredibly good. His character is unassailable. Number two, God doesn't kill people. If God's killing people, what's the devil doing? Number three, Jesus doesn't save us from a monster called the Father. 
I reject any theology of where Jesus is saving me from the Father. And so in an effort to maintain the greatness and the goodness of God, we've created theologies where God turns out to be a monster and we can look at evil and we can look at horrible things and say God planned it. Because if he didn't plan it, then what's going on, right? Well, I want to share with you um, one way that we begin to dig out of this horrible pit. And it's this. It's to see the greatness of God, to see who he is, and to see the mighty deeds of God are all most clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Everything else is a dim, dark mirror. Let me explain. Number one, God has never done anything in history as great as Jesus. The greatest thing in all of history is Jesus. To come and live and die on behalf of people who weren't particularly welcoming. And God has never done anything as great. The beauty of His character is put on perfect display in the person of Jesus. Most people are not surprised to know that Jesus is like God, but they're rather shocked to learn that God is like Jesus. In church this morning, one of the things that we need to settle in our hearts right here and right now, is that Jesus is like God, but God is exactly like Jesus. God would never do anything that Jesus doesn't do. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's the exact representation of the Father. God is not a monster. Jesus is not a monster. He takes in sinners and He calls them friends. This is one of the parts of the gospel that kills me the most. Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, hangs out with 12 guys that he spent three or three and a half years with. He shared his life and his heart with them. Every, and he knows that every one of them is going to leave him. One of his very best friends says, I'll never leave you, Jesus. Denies him three times. Another friend. By the way, Jesus was a good friend to Judas. This is one of the things we need to get clear up right now. Jesus, Jesus wasn't a- antagonistic toward Judas ever, Okay. He invites him to the meal. And one of his best friends, Judas, when he betrays Jesus, he betrays him with a kiss. What a dagger. And Jesus, on that very night that he was betrayed with a kiss, and when his, one of his very, very best friends, one of his best friends in all of his life, denied him three times, Jesus, just an hour or two before, looked at those very guys and says, I don't call you guys slaves. I call you friends. What's God like? He's the kind of God who comes into betrayers and thieves. And he says, I just, I just love you guys. And I know you're going to leave me, but I love you. And I know you're a spreadsheet, but I love you. And I can't even help it. I can't help it. Jesus lays down his life for rebels and thieves. He welcomes little children. He makes a place for women in an otherwise boys-only club. He ate with sinners and prostitutes. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He leaves the 99 to go and find the one. And as a pastor, a lot of times when one person leaves my church, I'm thrilled. But Jesus is never thrilled. Like there have been people who left the church here at the vineyard. And I thought, I thought it was an answer to prayer. I've actually, I'm just, we're going to have honest pastor time. I'm, I have a beverage. There have been people who left. And I thought, that's fantastic, man. Dude, you should definitely go be someone else's issue. I never liked your emails anyway. And then the, 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 the whisper of the Spirit comes into my ear and goes, Adam, I know, you got it. I know you think that guy's a jerk, but I love him. That's a sucky moment. <laughs> I love what Annie Lamont says. She says, 
You know you've created a God in your own image when it turns out he hates everyone you do. <laughs> yeah, late in my bed one night, I was so happy someone left, and then God tells me, Adam, he is a jerk. You're actually accurate. He's a total jerk. And I love him. Crazy about him, actually. I, I read a song about him. Would you like to hear it? I said, no, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> See, he's done great things for all of us. God is not a monster. He's kind and caring even to rebels and thieves. I don't know if I shared this with you. A couple weeks ago, I was in New Orleans. Had the most significant preaching moment of my whole life. I wasn't even anointed that night. Preached two nights. Friday night, I was really anointed. I probably could have walked up a wall. I'm not going to lie, I was pretty good on Friday night. Saturday night, I wasn't very good. Um, but I had the most significant moment on Saturday night. No one else in the room really had a significant moment, but I did. I, I felt like I was supposed to just talk about the love of God, and I just, I just began to talk about the love of God. We're in, we're in New Orleans. We're a half block off of Bourbon Street, which if you've never been there, it's hectic. It's everything you think it is and a lot more. So I'm preaching to a room full of pastors from all over the world and we're, we're right there on Bourbon Street, and you can kind of hear Preservation Jazz Club just down the street. And about three-quarters of the way through my message, I've been concentrating on this room of pastors, and I notice that there's other people there with me, and that there's, a, there's, there's some people of strange characters have wandered in, a couple homeless guys smashed out of their mind, just trading their bottle and they're just kind of standing up against the wall there's about a six five transvestite who's hanging out against the back wall and then just some other people that you wouldn't want to hang out with your children are there and i didn't notice them until i said if you never change he'll love you if you just never change and and then at that point i didn't just see the pastors in the room but i began to see all these other people who just really needed jesus and for the first time in my life, I had one of those moments where I'm having a preaching moment like Jesus. These are the people who come and they were around Jesus. Like really, really imperfect people who just, they need delivered. The transvestite needs delivered. The, the, the homeless guys need delivered. And the only thing that's going to change them is the love, the in, just the impossible love of God. You know? That's who Jesus is. What's God like? He's, he's, like, he's, he's like a guy who would come and love impossible people. He's surpassing greatness. If you, if you begin to see that part of Jesus, you'll be a worshiper. If you can't find God's acts of power in your life, and if you can't put your finger on His surpassing greatness, then you should read the Gospels. You should read the Gospel of Mark. It's really short. It'll only take you about an hour and a half. Read the Gospel of Mark and tell me what fault you can find in Jesus. Tell me if He doesn't win you over. Send me an email about that. It'll get into your heart and it'll change who you are. And pretty soon you'll be responding to the love of God. Verses 3 through 5. The psalmist writes, Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. That's loud. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. That's quiet. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. That's wild. 
Praise Him with strings and pipe. That's soothing. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. That's crazy. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. That's annoying. There's some... There's something about God. He, he, he is able to accept all kinds of worship. And one of the things I want you to notice here is that specifically what's being talked about here is music. And even it's, it's, it's actually music apart from lyrics at this point. Okay? Just music. Now, I want you to notice something here. In the Bible, music is not permitted. It's actually commanded. If God is commanding music, then we have sorely underestimated the power of what happens when somebody grabs a guitar and steps on some pedals. We've sorely underestimated what happens when people put in their headphones, put on their Dre beats. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen people wear those. <laughs> Typically on an airplane. I don't know. Um... But in the scripture, music isn't just permitted, it's commanded. If it's commanded, then there's power there. One of the things I've come to learn is that music is the hypodermic needle that can inject the truth of God into a hard heart. Music and melody have a power all their own. Melody is a, is a kind of truth all by itself. One of the things that, that we learn here is that melody makes people vulnerable to God. Like really, really angry people, people who don't like God, they will oftentimes come here to the vineyard. Why? I don't know. This has happened on more than one occasion. People who are angry at God, people who don't believe in Him, and in fact think that believing in Him makes you an idiot. Okay? People like that have actually come to the vineyard here before, and not because of my preaching, which is really unfortunate, but because of the music, because of the music and the truth that Melody holds by itself, they became vulnerable to God, and He won them over because of beauty. You know what wins people over? Beauty. It just, it wins people over all the time. How many of you guys have ever listened to like, like some of the great classical music. Anybody ever heard of like a Mozart symphony? Like, There's no words there. You, you, like you should do this at some point. You should put your, your Dre beats on. You've got them. <laughs> Get your Dre beats out some night. Put on a Mozart symphony and let it wash over you. You'll become vulnerable to the spirit realm. Why? Because it's, it's just beauty. It's, it's the beauty of the Lord. And it, it goes into places that no other place can go. And God says that you should worship with dance and movement. You should worship with trumpets and loud stuff. You should worship with strings and emotional stuff. And one of the things that I see in all that is that praise, as the people of God, praise must be expressed through music, song, poetry, lyric, and dance, knowing that it isn't simply an interior intellectual activity. Worship to God is not an interior intellectual activity. If it is an interior intellectual activity, then it favors the smart and the crafty, and it leaves out too many people. And so worship must become, must, worship, worship must come, it must become expressive. There must be some aspect of worship that's expressed. It must come from the inside to the outside. 
because it's about the whole person engaged, spirit, soul, and body. You see, when a person does this on a Sunday morning and gets a little bit loud, it's not just like getting caught up in the moment. It's actually spirit, soul, and body being united for one moment. It might be the only moment you get united in your entire week. People were living in like increasingly fractured lives. And sometimes the only whole moment that a person will have in their entire week out of 168 hours, I think that's right, out of 168 hours is the 30 or 40 minutes that worship happens here. And when the body gets engaged and the mind is illuminated by anointed lyrics and the melody is touching the heart and a person can be a whole person, that's the power of worship. Anything less, take one of those parts out. Take one part out. Take out dancing and you've lost something of biblical worship. Take out singing and we're losing it left and right. We'll become increasingly fractured people. Take out, take out lyrics. We become increasingly fractured. See, knowing God has to be expressed because expression is a core aspect of belief. Expression is a core aspect of belief. And so when we worship, when we sing, if you put your hands up, and I highly recommend that. Some of you might be thinking, well, that makes me feel weird. You should just feel weird sometimes. It's awesome. It's great. It's really great. But worship is a part of expression. It has to be expressed. And expression is an aspect of belief. You see, sometimes it feels really weak to do things like sing a song. or It feels really weak to put your hands up or feels really weak to shout. Like, I don't want to shout. It'll make me look weird. Man, I'm telling you, it has to be expressed. Why? Very simple. Because it's part of the little tiny expressions. It's a part of acting on little tiny aspects of belief that empower you for bigger aspects of belief. You know, eventually, eventually Abraham left home and David picked up a rock and killed a giant. Belief has an expression. And it's, and it's no coincidence that it was David, the guitar player on the hills with the sheep who sang to God, who expressed his belief to God over and over in little tiny insignificant ways that sometimes make us feel a little awkward. I feel a little awkward. I don't know how, the, I, don't know how I feel about that, brother. Well, it's no coincidence that David was the guy who sat on the hill with a guitar and he expressed his heart to God over and over. It's no coincidence that he's the guy who picked up a rock and killed a giant that no one else had confidence would ever die. See, for a lot of us in the room, God has given us prophetic promises over our lives that are just as impossible as Goliath being killed by a rock from, thrown from a boy who was 16 years old. And I'm telling you, the only way to enter in to great, great promises given to you by the Lord is to begin to act upon the little aspects of belief which are set before us every day and even every Sunday even in worship, to begin to sing, to begin to say, God, you are real, to begin to say, you're not just real, but you're good. I'm, I'm seeing your goodness. To begin to awaken to the goodness of the Lord and express it, it changes something on your interior that may change your future forever. These are not weak moments. These are life-defining moments. The only, two, the only people in the Gospels who stayed by Jesus were the over-emotional worshipers who just threw their whole life at his feet. John on his breast, Mary at his feet. Everyone else left. They were at the cross. And so that's, that's where we've come to today. The Lord is calling us back to being a church of over-emotional worshipers and spreadsheets who can give their 
hearts to Jesus. Is that okay? Hey, here's what we're going to do this morning as the benediction. Uh, we're going to shout. So uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, uh, I'll give you 30 seconds and you can leave. I'm just kidding. <laughs> every head bowed and every eye closed. Okay, go ahead, Yingli. No. Why don't you stand up? We're gonna, today's benediction is we're, gonna, we're just going to shout. It's, more, it's not more anointed, it's just more fun, okay? So, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't you just uh, spend eight seconds thinking about the greatness of God and His kindness toward you? One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand, seven, one thousand, eight. All right, does everybody have something in the brain? Okay, if you can't think of anything, just think about something real good Jesus did. Think about the leper in, in Mark chapter 1. That was a good day. <laughs> All right, here's what we're going to do on the count of three. We're going to shout, and then after that, I want you to give somebody a high five and someone else a hug, and then we'll be over. All right? Amen. One, two, three. Yes! <laughs> That was fun. Hey, actually, we should do that again. Here we go. One, two, three. Yes! Amen. I'm a little lightheaded. Y'all have a good one. Bye.